Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the London Book Fair and a very special edition of the Read Like a Writer podcast. The first one we've ever done live and the first one we've done with as many wonderful guests as well. Um, it's faintly odd to be sitting here uh, surrounded by the huge cavernous space of Olympia, but also in this lovely faux fur-covered chair with a headset on. Feels somewhat like a cross between Britney Spears and Sansa Stark. With me, also dancing like Britney, although maybe we'll save that for the parties later, we have Jess Kidd, who's the author of himself, The Hoarder, and the wonderfully titled Things in Jars, which is published on April 4th. Um, then we have Claire McGlasson, uh, who works as a journalist for uh, ITV News Anglia, and her debut, The Rapture, is out very shortly this year as well. Finally, but not least, we have Alex Nathan, who's written many books for both adults and children, including The Last Fire in 2014 and The Flight of Sarah Battle the following year. And this July, we can look forward to her upcoming book, The Warlow Experiment. So I wanted to ask all of you, and at first, it was actually quite fortunate because you sat in alphabetical order, which I'd written down to be fair, uh, but now I think I'll take you in chronological order of the order that your books are set in as well, because um, you were all writers of historical fiction set in different periods, at least for the ones you've got coming out at the moment. So Alex, your book is set in the late 1700s, isn't it? I wondered yes. if you could tell us a bit more about the Warlow experiment. Well, it's, it's set in 17, it goes from 1793 to 1800, just that small gap. Uh, and I happened to read an extraordinary uh, piece um, in an annual register, which I have an, a, a numerous annual registers. And I read, I read a piece about a man who had lived underground for seven years. He'd been invited to do so by somebody. Uh, but he had to live underground and he had to have uh, no contact whatsoever with anybody. But however, he wasn't living in severe conditions. He had wonderful conditions. Beautiful food was sent down every day and he had everything he could want, books and or, you know, any, anything you might want if you were on your own living underground for seven years. Um, and this, of course, is what forms the basis of your novel, that isn't it? it? The idea the that someone would voluntarily yes, participate yes. in this experiment to live solitarily underground That's right. for seven years. And the puzzle was, why? first of all, why would anybody agree to do it? 
and what happened to him. And, and also, why did anybody set this up in the first place? I mean, what, what on earth was that all about? So I had to sort of get into that. Um, which I think it does quite easily as well. And, and I think there's this lovely spirit of rationalism that starts with and then it completely mm. decays as mm. it goes all the way through into something kind of much more monstrous almost. Yes. I in a very to... large sense of the word. Yes, I'm a bit worried. I, I, I've just started reading Frankenstein for the second time, having read uh, the wonderful Fiona Sampson's book on, on Mary Shelley. And I'm worried by the fact that, you know, that is a book about a monster. And I, I hope my characters haven't become monstrous, and I hope I haven't been um, propelled by that book. But yes, it does. The whole situation becomes pretty terrible. And Jess as well, so moving on to you. Now, you're set in the Victorian era, and in a slightly more magical realist way, there is actually a more sort of extra-human person in yours. Um, but can you tell us a bit about Things in Jars? Certainly. Well, Things in Jars is set in London in 1863, and it follows Bridie Devine, who is an investigator of the bazaar, and her latest case is the kidnapping of Christabel Berwick, um, who is a child who is said to be remarkable, and also a child who's said not to exist. And so, you know, Christabel is a curiosity, and there is a potential that she could become a spectacle. And London of that time loved a spectacle. So, Bridie fights to recover the stolen child, and this makes her enter a world of uh, fanatical anatomists and, and sort of um, crooked showmen as well. And so, as she's trying to find Christabel, the ghosts of her own past are sort of resurrected through her search. So I think it's interesting because both you and Alex have um, the core of almost science perverted along the way uh, in both of your books as a theme. Um, but then, Claire, you opted for um, looking at things through the lens of religion in the 1920s. Yes. Um, so can you tell us a bit about yours? Well, the rapture is based on a, a real cult of women in, in Bedford in the 1920s. It began in the 1920s. They were called the Panacea Society, and they believed their leader, Octavia, was the daughter of God and that they lived in the Garden of Eden. Um, Which was a detail I loved, by the way, the idea that the original Garden of Eden would be in suburban Bedford. Suburban <laughs> Bedford's very nice, but I'm, yes. Um, I'm not knocking it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they had lost um, husbands, sons, brothers in the First World War came to believe that men had made rather a mess of things and that salvation was assured through Jesus, but they needed women to bring salvation on earth. So based on a real group of women, um, and the title speaks of the rapture of um, religious fervor, but also of falling in love. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned, actually, because there was a particular quote from your book that I thought was quite fascinating, and it's... Um, Obviously, it's set just after the First World War. It says, The war stole their brothers, their husbands, and they were left with great piles of money in their place. They inherited freedom. Now, I think for all historical writers, and yours does it very explicitly, um, but there's a lot about, you kind of have to wrestle with the role of women in that particular time as well. Um, now, Claire, your characters have sort of set up a largely majority female society, haven't they? And there's this idea that they, there are more women and fewer men at that particular point in time by sheer demographics. But um, there's still a sort of sense that they probably don't have as much freedom as they want. Do you think that's true? I think they're a strange group in that, on the one hand, they were very radical. You know, it's a feminist interpretation of the Bible, which was, you know, very much out there. But in, in other ways, you know, they were very much a product of their time. So they're still 
restrained and restricted by wider society and they put themselves in this environment where they're spying on each other they have to report on each other of, of their sins so they're this very claustrophobic world that they've put themselves into mm. and then of course jess as well your central character bridie uh she of the terrible bonnet which poor woman she gets mentioned ever such a lot <laughs> oh the bonnet yeah it's a very important uh, aspect of bridie divine yeah but she's also very tough you know she can handle herself she's very intelligent she's made her way in a world that really isn't set up for independent women to make their way in that was a difficulty actually coming to write it because i knew i wanted to um, write a female protagonist and i also wanted it to be access all areas i wanted her to go into every sort of realm of society from the rookeries of London to the country drawing room and I realised that actually it would have been very difficult for her to get access to a lot of the places uh, things like operating theatres she wouldn't have been able to necessarily go into and so she assumes a number of disguises and also creates a fictional dead husband to allow herself to present as a widow which allows her to move more freely it gives her that veneer of respectability doesn't it? It, it does yes there's lots of different layers to bridey really that she can draw on and then of course alex for you as well although you know there, there are protagonists of many different genders in your novel but i was thinking particularly about Catherine, the maid who's incredibly smart woman and is frustrated by her station in life you know she can read and write a fair hand as it's put at the time yes i mean it's very i i was worried by the fact that the, my two main protagonists are men and you know i'm not doing what i should be doing just writing about women i, um, I don't think there's any well, need to really but. well it kind of did worry me somewhat but uh catherine is somebody who sort of comes gradually forward through the book she's not even present at the very beginning of the book but it would i mean life was very difficult for women in the 1790s unless you were highborn and had a lot of money like um duchess of devonshire you couldn't do much she's very restricted by her position in life and there's also hannah as well and hannah of course is a victim he She's really doesn't have the benefit of Catherine's no. intelligence or the limited education that Catherine Absolutely. has had. Absolutely. And, and, and she is a very, very unfortunate victim. But, I mean, given the, given the situation, in a sense, it perhaps, perhaps there had to be a victim. Yeah. Um, well, I think several people are probably victims along the way in, in different respects. Yes. Well, you could say so, yes. As a more general point, and any of you can answer this one first, but I wonder, you know, how much of our own time do you end up putting into historical writing? How much can you never not be a writer of the late 2010s um, while you're writing about a different era? I think it's a really good question, and I'm a cross-genre writer anyway, so I'm always drawn to hybridity and the kind of clashing of, of different elements. And that's one of the fascinations. I think you are necessarily mediating that experience through a lens of, the, of your contemporary time, which, which sets up this kind of debate between the time, your time, and then potentially the future times when someone will approach your book in, in the future. So I suppose what you're looking for is to set up a resonance between the times and pick out elements that you want to discuss in the here and now but use that time accordingly i can see some nodding there claire i think historical fiction or the, the the best kind holds up a mirror to the to ourselves you know we look at the past and we we take from it what we will something like um barbara kingsolver's latest novel you know very, speaks very much to our time um but i do love the escapism of the historical setting and that and i, and I like the research element as well I don't really think about my own time when, when writing this, but I, what I'm hoping is, and it's more in a way what you were saying, Claire, which is that I hope that I'm addressing fundamental human 
problems and human relationships. Uh, and I think, you know, historical fiction can do that as well as, as, well as any can, if it's, if it's any good. Uh, I mean, one has to get one's period right, of course, that's perfectly true. Um, but that's not all it is. Uh, and, and sometimes when people have come and said to me, oh, I learned so much about the period from your book, and I think, oh, no, <laughs> I know, that's awful. I'm not a historian. I don't want to teach people about the period. That's not the point. It's the setting for the larger human drama, mm. which should I be it should be timeless. It should be. Mm. This is a terribly cheesy segue. Speaking of timeless, <laughs> we're going on to um, your favourite bookshops, some of which are new, some of which have been there for a while. Um, Claire, I wondered if you could kick off. Now, uh, like your book, your chosen independent bookshop is also in Bedford. Not far from the Garden of Eden, in fact. It's a few so streets we, along. I mean, so, how um, often can you claim that exactly. as a <laughs> So Rogan's Books in Bedford, um, which is run by the wonderful Rachel Rogan, who got into bookselling quite by accident, was sort of persuaded by people she'd set up book groups for children and, and babies, and the suggestion was made that she start a bookshop, which she's done, a children's bookshop, where everything's curated, everything's hand-picked and hand-sold. So she wanted to create a shop where any child could go in and see themselves somewhere on one of the books on the shelves. And I'm pleased to say she's now opening a, a big new adult section. So it's, it's now a children's and feminist bookshop. Um, so there'll be space for adults to go and browse while the children are in there. But she's so, she's so passionate. She's learning as she goes along and lots of community events. And I love the fact that she has read and loved every book in there. I mean, that's quite something for recommendations, yeah. isn't it? Speaking of books you've read, you said that Margaret Atwood, several of her books were quite an influence on your current novel as well, on The Rapture. Yeah. Um, can you explain a bit why that is? Well, Cat's Eye is a book I studied for A-level and is the reason I went on to read English at university because I, I loved it. And there's a lot of um, power politics in that amongst children. Is, is fantastic. You know, the, the manipulation, the control between the, the, um, the young girls in the book. The Handmaid's Tale is, is a book that I've loved for many years and I'm delighted that you know, more people have come to it now thanks to the TV series. But there's obviously the, the faith element of that and how belief and faith in something can manipulate your view of the world to such a degree and how gradually that can happen. So um, Handmaid's Tale was a huge influence. And also Alias Grace, which I love in terms of that claustrophobic... Um, you know, the historical setting and also the unreliable narrator. Mm. That's very interesting. I can see that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, and then, you know, you're obviously, like so many of us, I imagine, very keen to read Atwood's sequel to The yes. Handmaid's Tale, The Testaments. Um, but you're also very much looking forward to Eleanor Anstruther's A Perfect Explanation, which I hadn't heard of before you mentioned it, but sounds fascinating. It's loosely based on her grandmother's life, yes. isn't it? So it's a, it's a tale of an aristocratic family of which she is a member. Um, I think it's her father who's key in the book. Um, and it's a tale of how a child within that family was sold. Um, and I think, um, I've read a little bit that she said, with her father's wishes, she delved back into the story that he never spoke about. You know, he never wanted to talk about it, but with his blessing, she's... She's drawn that story from him, and um, I've heard wonderful things. I think it's published in the next... Could be tomorrow, actually. Uh, yes, it's uh, out in oh, March. Right, okay. So, yeah, mid-March, I think it is uh, this Thursday. Um, and then, in terms of a book you surprised you love, um, you've actually mentioned a few titles, but it's more of a genre that people are surprised by and that you have surprised yourself yes. by getting into. Well, crime is not something I've ever really read. Um, I don't tend to watch crime dramas. I'm... I don't necessarily have that, um, you know, competitive streak of wanting to know who, who done it. The mystery doesn't appeal, but why, why they've done it, it does. Um, and a, a friend of mine, um, Elodie Harper, wrote a, a story called The Binding Song and another one called The Death Knock. Um, and, of course, I read them because she's a, she's a friend of mine. And what I loved is that she tackles the things that make me feel uncomfortable about crime or maybe my assumptions about crime, you know violence against women, things I find difficult to read, she tackles that head on and actually, you know, goes against it and explores some of the, some of the stereotypes, I suppose. So I found her approach really refreshing and I think crime is a wonderful tag to sell books, you know, any genre can, can be good because it makes people reach for a book, but it also, I think, can put people off sometimes. They think that I'm much more open-minded to crime than I was. I think that's uh, all of us being open-minded about putting mm. things in genres. Yeah. probably a very useful lesson for the whole fair. Um, Alex, uh, before we sort of sat down in front of our wonderful faux fire here, um, <laughs> you and I were both talking about Shropshire, um, mm. which is where your favourite bookshop is in Bishop's Castle, isn't mm. it? Yes, uh, we live three miles outside Bishop's Castle. It's a very small town, 2,000 people living there, I would say. Not very well equipped for shops at all, but it has a, it has a shop called Art and Artisan, and it sells art books and craft books. And also, you can buy the most fantastic socks there, which have been knitted in every single colour you can think of. And uh, unfortunately, I'm not actually wearing any. I should have worn some today. Um, anyway, but it's a, it's, a, it's a lovely shop, and they will get books for you. I mean, even though I can't afford the art books that I really would like to get there. So one's just so glad that there is a shop there at all. And actually, I did read in, in, in the big issue the other day that apparently... Last year, 15 new independent bookshops were established in the country. And I thought that was just marvellous. And one has established itself in, in another town called Montgomery, which is six miles away from where we live. That's actually in Wales. But, you know, hooray. This is Eves and That's Lord, wonderful. Isn't it? Eves and Lord in Montgomery is the one you... Yes. Yes, yes that's um, right. Have you had chance to go in yet? Yes, I have. And I've, and I've already bought a couple of books. Um, and I, but I haven't told them that I'm mentioning them today. So I have to, I have to go back and 
Well, it's always any excuse to go back, hey? <laughs> Absolutely. And looking at some of the other things you said as well before, so uh, you've talked a lot about Penelope Fitzgerald. Oh, yes. Um, you said, which is very humble of you, I wish I could write like her. Um, oh, oh, my goodness. Um, Absolutely. But you say that also Fitzgerald's work has really influenced yours as well. Well, I mean, she just is somebody I, I would aspire to be like. Her books haven't influenced what I've written because my writing's not as good as hers is. But, I mean, she, is, she has this absolutely marvellous style, which is very economical, which one can aim for, and which I also know that her books are historical fiction of various sorts, and that also, if you read the biography of her, that she had did the most enormous amount of research for each of the books that she wrote. But you would never know it. The research is used so lightly that it's as if she hasn't done any. Which very much ties in, actually, to your earlier point about not letting the history get away in the way of the story. Absolutely I can so. see why you're a yes. fan in yes. that respect. Yes, yes, yes. Um, And then a really interesting one, actually, is that you think people would be surprised that you really love William Gibson. Um, yes. You've picked out Virtual Light as one of his books in particular, but well, Gibson I mean, in general. Science fiction is something that I've hardly read any of in my life. And, but, but recently uh, there have been some William Gibsons at home and I've picked them up and thought, well, I'll give it a go. And uh, absolutely marvellous stuff. And I just think that there could be an interesting similarity between science fiction and historical fiction in that this is a creation of a whole world Mm. uh, of an exotic kind, which perhaps most people don't know about. And of course, with the science fiction, it involves amazing research and and one has to... I mean, I can't say that I've really understood all the ideas that there are in, in William Gibson. But it's a whole world which seems quite different, but actually is all about human beings. So it gets back to the point we were making forward. It's really actually is all about human relationships and so forth. And he's very funny. Yes, I don't think people give him enough credit for that, actually. People always talk about him as being a very, you know, future-facing thinker, Mm. um, someone who can uh, create all of these different worlds, who can coin sort of terms that then come into popular usage. Mm. But yes, no one really gives him any credit for being quite amusing as well. Yes, it made me laugh a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, um, one of the things you said you were most keen to read uh, coming up would be the final volume of Hilary Mantle's Wolf Hall Oh, well, yes, I mean, we're all waiting for that. (laughs) Well, I mean, who isn't? Who isn't, I know. (laughs) Oh, well, just, I mean... uh, uh, Hilary Mantel was, was very kind to me in the early days of my writing. I mean, I've never met her, but she, she just was... I mean, apart from anything else, it's, it's that that I was very, very grateful for. And so, of course, I'm very curious. I mean, we've waited, haven't we? We've waited for longer than we were expecting. So, What is it you liked about the previous two books in the trilogy? Well, she, I, I suppose her historical writing is totally different from mine. I mean, she, okay, she, she does enormous amounts of research. One has to do research. But she dares to write about people who everybody knows and who other people have written about and historians are bothered about, whereas I've chosen people who nobody knows. So, you know, I feel I can get away with murder, really. But, <laughs> but who are nonetheless... And she can't. No, I suppose there's a certain element that her plot's already been uh, predetermined for her and she mm. has to fill in around that. Um, mm. I was actually going to mention that she'd been incredibly uh, praise, full of praise for your writing as well, which I think is something that probably most authors would dream of, really. <gasps> well, that was lovely of her, yeah, it was very nice. And Wonderful. I, I think obviously quite worthy as well. 
And then Jess, moving on to you, um, you're a big fan of the Open Book, which is in Richmond in oh, Surrey, aren't you? I am. It's, it's a great place. It's kind of a TARDIS of a place and keeps, you keep going further and further back into the shop. And it's, it's run by Helena and staffed by Maddie and Kirsten. And it's got quite an interesting history as well as some really loyal customers um, who, who make comments like one customer in particular thinks it might be haunted by Elizabeth I who died just around the corner in Richmond Palace so there's that kind of idea to it and they also recently came up with the idea because I think Virginia Woolf's going to get a, a statue in Richmond so that you know when it was a hardware shop she was like a regular customer that kind of thing so, so it's a great place and it's a place where you go and there's stories fun around it and so I love going there. There's a book that you say uh, people might be surprised that you love and it's actually one of the classics so I was wondering why people think it's a surprise. Uh, It's Madame Bovary. Yeah I mean I suppose it's not a surprise that anyone would love the book because it's an absolutely beautiful uh, tragic novel Um, but but I suppose the reason why I picked it is because it's so different to the kind of work that I do. Um, Flaubert made this incredible story of a a rural um, doctor's wife and and, and Emma tries to part from her sort of life of mundane uh, reality by flights of fancies and some affairs. And it all you know, ends terribly, as it would in a tragedy. Um, but, but what I'm really drawn to is the kind of humanity in the novel and the way that realism works in the novel to sort of build up this kind of detailed portrait of a life. And so, um, I mean, I also use realism to kind of try and root the reader in an everyday world, but I stretch it a bit by bringing magic realism to play as well. And so I also love the kind of way that Flaubert has this kind of um, sort of reticent, narrator who's not willing to make judgments and so we we feel real empathy and sympathy for Emma accordingly so again I struggle this is something I struggle with with my narrators they always like to put their oar in and uh, and so I think I come from more of a kind of storytelling tradition in this respect that you know that my narrators are, are quite present really there so um so yeah that's why I picked it I feel like it's uh it's a perfect novel, really. It's a, a great recommendation. Um, it's interesting as well that you talk about this idea of uh, hooking the magic realism onto some realism and also a narrator sort of being very invested in a narrator as well because this makes complete sense when we talk about the book that's influenced the ri- your writing as well and you mention uh, Perfume. Perfume Story of a Murderer by Patrick Suskind. Um, I, I love this book. Um, I mean, it's, it's a strange and twisted plot of, um, of a protagonist who's born in the 18th century France. He's, he's left uh, for dead in a, in a fish market in Paris. And he grows up to have no personal scent of his own, but this kind of supernaturally gifted sense of smell. And so he navigates by scent. And so what Suskind was doing was onto this kind of um, you know, real detailed aspect of his training to be a perfumer and, and the world itself. He was sort of grafting this supernatural element on. So I found this completely fascinating. And also in the way that the, um, the character can move around sort of unnoticed and things. So I thought, okay, that's really interesting because I wanted Bridie to be able to do the same, to assume disguises, although she's not as twisted, obviously, as, as the, uh, 
No, I think as the we, individual we can, in perfume. I think we can safely say that Bridie's probably more on the side of the good. I think than... she's more on the well. There's a twinkle in her eye, but I think I think yeah, she definitely is. On the whole, I on don't whole. think any good character is completely black or white. Yes. And talking of other things that you've recently read, um, you've mentioned The Bus on Thursday by Shirley Barrett, um, which yeah. was out in hardback last October, and the paperback is coming out later this year. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is it particularly about The Bus on Thursday that's appealed to you? It, it was an incredible book, actually. It follows Eleanor, um, who has been... She's, she's just got a teaching post in rural Australia, and she's replacing a teacher that everybody loves. It's Mrs. Barker has disappeared. Miss Barker has disappeared. And, and so people can't talk about her without crying. And so Eleanor sort of already is set up for failure. Um, but she's also reeling from a recent treatment for breast cancer. So it explores her relationship with an ex-partner and her family and so forth. And so as, as the book sort of continues, it becomes very absurdist and sort of unravels. And it's just very, very wicked and very, very funny and and very very odd and so all the things I quite like in a read really <laughs> at this point you are looking quite wicked and quite funny but I'm not going to say odd okay. because that would be really okay. mean okay. <laughs> and also not true okay. Jess thank you um that's been brilliant um thank you all three of you uh for talking a bit about your own books uh I can call you the future of historical fiction as well, perhaps. But um, thank you for joining me and Read Like a Writer for the London Book Fair Special Edition. Read Like a Writer was brought to you by Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale, Profile Books and Canongate, and was presented by me, Anna Fielding. And we'd love to hear what you have to say too, so do tweet us at readlikeapod. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.